Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, as she said, my name is Ryan and have the privilege of uh, helping run our college ministry here at the chapel. And so if you know of anyone, or maybe you yourself are 18 to 24, 25, we really designate a ministry for that season of life. And uh, it's a great privilege to do so with me and my wife, Hannah. Uh, but I love, I love being here on Sunday mornings, teaching in a big church, as we college students call it. <laughs> but it really is, it's a joy, and I'm excited uh, to really look at the word together. Uh, when I had... When I had graduated high school, I took a gap year and I engaged with a organization called Torchbearers, just basically a Bible school where a bunch of young people show up and we learn the Bible for a year. And a unique thing about that gap year program is guest lecturers fly in and out almost every week. And so one guy flies in, teaches you the book of Mark, he flies out, another guy flies in. So it was such an instrumental a part of my life where I learned my Bible and just a year that I grew so much, uh, specifically from learning from a lot of godly men. And one of the guys who travels for torchbearers, his name is Charles Price, and I sat and, and listened to a lesson he taught once on faith, and it's just been so instrumental in my own life. And so I figured I'd love to, before we walk into the new year, to tackle faith together. What is faith and how does it actually show up in our life? Because the scriptures say, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so excited, excited to be with you today. And I'm, I'm convinced, one thing I'm convinced of is that the Lord has a desire for me and for you. And that is that we would live a life that he made us to live that we'll just call it a, a God life. There is a God life. He has extended his hand to you and desires for you to accept it and to live in it. A life that follows him, but not just follows him, but a life, your life changes as you, as you follow him. He desires every human being to live this, to live this God life. One where joy is present, peace is present, contentment is present. And you know, I'm, I'm, I, uh, my job is with college students, and it's not an uncommon thing for a college student to walk in my office and say, Ryan, it feels like my God life. It feels like my Christian life is broken. It's not joy I'm experiencing, it's despair. It's not, or it's not peace I'm experiencing. A big one is anxiousness. I'm just anxious all the time. And it's not contentment I'm experiencing, it's jealousy. And often I'll sit in a room or coffee or lunch and try to work through why, what is it? What is it about this God life, this Christian life of theirs that is broken? And if, it is a, if it's not an uncommon thing for young people, no doubt about it, it's not an uncommon thing for us. But likely there might be people in this room who are in a place like that, who feel like their Christian life is not what they're reading in the word. Like they, that, that we have a broken Christian life. And I know I've been there as well. And what I love about the scriptures is there are, there's a people in, this, in the Bible that found themselves in a very, very similar place that God, specifically in the Old Testament, extended a hand to them and said, hey, here is the God life. Follow me and live as I made you to live, where your, your life will shape up to be one of joy, of contentment, of peace. And at, 
On the outside, it would appear as if these people were doing so, but as we read the scriptures, we'll see they had a broken, a tremendously broken God life. They were not living as they were made to live. And these people, they were the, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And where we're looking at and focusing at in the story and the account of the Bible is God has just rescued Israel out of Egypt. They were enslaved to Egypt for hundreds of years. He's brought them out. They're in the wilderness. And God's looked at the people and said, hey, I am going to take you to a new land. I'm going to set up a new nation for you, and you're going to bless the whole world. And so they're in this transitional period to get to a new land. And God, the whole time, he's saying, you are my people. And he's extending a hand to them saying, hey, here is the God life. Follow me and your life will change because of it. And God gave them tremendous gifts to convince them that the God life was the best life and to prove to them that he would be God for them. A couple of those gifts, he looked at them and said, hey, they had one gift was a leader that talked directly to God. They had, their leader's name was Moses and he would sit and he would have a chit chat with God in the tent and God would guide Moses and then he'd go out and guide the people. That's a tremendous gift. If I'm walking in the wilderness and there's not a lot of water, there's not a lot of food, and I know my leader's over in that tent having a talk with God, I can have confidence that I should probably stay in this group, right? It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous gift if you were living in that time. But God didn't just give them a leader that talked directly to God. God also gave them a cloud and a ball of fire that was directed by God, that they would just simply look up, follow the cloud at night or uh, follow the cloud at day. There's this ball of fire they'd follow at night. And if I'm an enemy of Israel, I'm, I'm about to attack him at night. I see a ball of fire. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not stepping in there, right? So a leader that talked directly to God, a cloud and a ball of fire that was directed by God. Their armies fought with God and often God fought for them. That anytime, most of the time they fought in a battle, the hand of the Lord was with them. And they also had a tabernacle where they could dwell among God. God dwelt among them. God gave them tremendous, tremendous gifts to convince them that the God life was the best life to live and to prove to them that God would indeed be God for them. And yet, if you know the story, you know it's a sad account of how their peace was not present, joy was not present, contentment was not present, bickering was present, complaining was present, rebelling against what God said was present. And this desire to want to go back to the people that had enslaved them was present. That they had a broken, they had a broken God life. And we see in Hebrews chapter three, the, the writer is looking at, uh, looking at his audience and saying, listen, don't fall away like Israel did. Don't fall away like they did. And he's gonna list some reasons why. He's gonna say, and in chapter three, verse 15, while it said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as when they, Israel, provoked me, God. He goes on, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? Again, he's just saying, listen, don't fall away from God like Israel, like Israel did. And it is a, it's a super intriguing, like interesting, uh, some verses that follow soon after this that the writer of Hebrews is going to reference 
the people of Israel in light of really us today, but specifically who he's writing to of that time. And he says this, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. This, this word good news, it's a Greek word, and half the time when you see it in the scriptures in the New Testament, it translates good news. Half the time, it translates gospel. If you ever see good news or gospel, good chance it's this Greek word. And it is not a stretch to say that we have had this gospel preached to us just as they, Israel, also. Meaning, God extended a hand to Israel and said, hey, here is the God life. Be together with me and let your life shape up because of it. A life of peace, joy, and contentment. And that same hand has been extended to me and to you. That we also could live together with God to follow him and our life to change because of that. But the end of this part of the verse is is a scary reality for me, as it was for them. But the word they heard did not profit them. Another translation says, it had no value to them. They had a leader talk directly to God, cloud directed by God, an army that fought with God, a tabernacle dwell among God, and yet all of these things, the gospel had no value. It did not profit them. And that's so, that's so incredibly interesting to me that they sang, you know, they, they followed the cloud. They lived around this gospel. There's no doubt about it. They followed the cloud at, at, at day and ball of fire at night. They inclined their ear to Moses to listen to what God was wanting to share with them probably on a Sunday morning. They, they celebrated the religious holidays as it came up. Right? They sang the songs. They did the sacrifices. Their life was around the gospel, but it had no value to them. And how likely could that be of us today to live around such a beautiful gospel, but it profit us nothing, that it has no value? And a, and a question pulls up in my mind, how could a, such a beautiful gospel have no value? have profit me nothing. And spoiler alert, it's not because of God's side. And the next verse reveals, how could such a wonderful gospel profit them nothing, profit me nothing? Well, we see, for indeed, we've had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who had heard. They had a gospel that said, engage with God and have your life change. And they lived around this gospel, but they did not unite this gospel with faith, with faith. And I'd make the case, there's a good chance if we have a broken God life, if we are not living and experiencing the things the scriptures speak to what we should be experiencing as children of God, there's a high chance it's because we have not combined this wonderful gospel with faith. And so we have to ask the question, what is faith? What is faith? A simple definition for a simple word, I'd say faith is trusting. It's trusting in an object for an object to do as it should. Trusting in an object for an object to work as it should, right? Pen, object, I trust this pen will work as it should. It will write. And we see Hebrews 11.1 1 helps us in terms of understanding what faith is. Again, trusting in an object, for an object, to work as it should. 
And in Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You'd say, Ryan, why don't you just copy and paste that into your definition? Well, I'd make the case they are the same definition, and here's why. Faith always has an object. If you're walking down the street and someone says, I got a lot of faith, and you say, in what? And they say, nothing. You should run away. That's a scary person, right? Faith always has an object. There's no doubt about it. And we see this show up in the scriptures. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What are some things I hope for? I hope my car, an object, does as it should. Gets me home, right? That's what I hope. I hope my car gets me home. But faith is not just what we hope for. Faith comes into the picture when we assign assurance, when we assign certainty in what we hope for, right? So I have assurance, I have certainty that the object of my faith will do what I hope. I have certain that the object of my faith, my car, will indeed get me home. And I can have some assurance because it's often done that. You know, I, uh, I'm done with a Sunday morning and I go home to eat spaghetti, right? That's, I have assurance. It's gotten me home enough, right? I have certainty. But our faith, we lose faith in objects when what we hope happens doesn't. So I've actually lost faith in my car recently, mainly because in less than two years, I've gotten 14 flats, okay? It's an ungodly amount of flats. It's, it makes me upset just talking about it. And, and even at like flat six, I saw, the, I saw the writing on the wall and I got insurance on all my tires. And the people I take my car into think I'm scamming them because I show up so often with flat tires. It's just, it's terrible, right? But what's, what's happened? I have lost certainty. I've lost assurance that the object of my faith, my car, will indeed get me home right? And I recognize some of you are saying, Ryan, you, you shouldn't lose faith in your car. You should lose faith in humanity because someone's putting nails in your tires. And I agree. I think someone is. I'm like, I'm close to getting a little camera to see who's putting nails there. And it's always in the place you can't repair it. So, you know, I got to go get a new tire, which I'm talking too much about this. I apologize. <laughs> you can tell I care. <laughs> regardless though, regardless, I have lost faith in my car because it's not doing what I hope. And we see the, the verse helps us here, right? It's the conviction of things not yet seen. I have a conviction, I have a belief, especially before all the tires, that my car would do something even though I couldn't tell you, I'd see it, right? I can't tell you that my car will get me home today, but I have a belief and a conviction that it will. And in faith, many times we have convictions and beliefs in something we have not seen but we'll see, right? I have not seen the car get me home today, but I'll be able to tell you in a couple hours if it did. There's other places of our faith where we have a belief and a conviction and things we'll never see. And if you were to keep reading the chapter of Hebrews 11, it would give you a picture of a bunch of people of faith. And there's a verse in there that's really awesome. And it says, many of these people, all these people died without seeing the promise fulfilled that they were given. And so these people had faith even though they never saw, they never saw the promise fulfilled. And so we have faith sometimes with things we won't see, sometimes in things that we don't see but will see. But regardless, the simple definition is trusting in an object for an object to work, to work as it should, to do what I hope, even though I may, I may not see it. And I think most of us get this, uh, but for much of my life, 
I have had a faulty view of faith. I've had some wrong thinking when it comes to faith. That I've thought, that I've thought the most important thing about faith is that I need to believe harder and I need to have more of it. That's it. If I, get, I hit something hard, I just need more faith in order to, to do this. I just need to have more faith and it'll probably solve itself out. <clears throat> and we see, we see the disciples have the same issue here. In Luke 17, Jesus gives a really hard teaching to the disciples. He says, hey, if someone sins against you seven times, forgive them seven times every single day. And the disciples are like, that's hard. That's difficult. And if I'm one of them, I'm, I'm scratching my head saying, Jesus, if someone punches me seven times a day, I should forgive them? And he's like, yes. And I, I honestly should probably avoid them, right? It doesn't make sense to line up my face for hit number five. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. But regardless, hard teaching, hard truth, forgive seven times a day. And what do we see about how the disciples feel about faith? In the next verse, here's how they respond to the hard teaching. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith, right? So we see him saying, Lord, this is tough. I need more in order to do it. I need more faith. And I'd make the case today that the most important thing about faith is not how much you have. And you might disagree. There might be someone here who disagrees. I, Ryan, it is about the most, it is about how much I have. Well, a little experiment for you. If faith is about how much you have, after church, pull off to the left of St. Augustine and go 95, I'm not saying the interstate, go 95 miles an hour down old St. Augustine. And when those cops pull up behind you and they hit those red blue lights and they get on the intercom screaming, pull over. Remember, faith, if the amount of your faith is what matters, I want you to stick your head out while you're driving 95 miles an hour and scream at them, you will not pull me over. You will not pull me over and say it louder and louder until you believe it. Mountain-sized faith that these cops are not going to pull you over. What's gonna happen? Yeah, you actually might not get pulled over. You'll be forced over, right? And then thrown over the back of their car and handcuffed <laughs> and then taken over to jail, right? The, the most important thing about our faith is not how much we have. And we see Jesus reveal this in the next verse. They, the disciples say, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea. And it would, it would obey you, right? Jesus is saying, hey, you got it. You got it wrong. That's not about how much you have. You could have a small amount and big things would still happen. I think the rest of the scriptures reveal that the most important thing about faith is not how much I have, but rather the object that my faith is in. The object my faith is in. If you just think about it, have a ton of faith and thin ice, what's gonna sink? Yes, you and your faith, both you and your faith. <laughs> but have a little faith or just enough, enough so that faith is present and thick ice, what's gonna happen? I mean, I, I experienced this a couple of years ago. I, uh, my wife uh, grew up in Michigan, so went to Michigan during the Christmas time and wanted to see Great Lake. And I'm walking up to the Great Lake and it's frozen over. And they're telling me, Ryan, this is five feet thick. And I'm, I'm on the edge, the ice is right here, and I'm not stepping on it. And I'm like, Ryan, why aren't you stepping on the ice? Come on. And they're like running around on it. 
I grew up in South Carolina, and if there's a frozen lake, it's not frozen. You're, you're going to sink if you step on it. And they said, stop being a baby, Ryan. So I took a step, like as cautious, tiptoe step as I could. Not a lot of faith, just enough that faith was present to step. And I was held up. The most important thing about faith is not how much I have. It's the object I put, I put my faith in. And I sure, I'm sure you see where I'm going with this. The greatest object, the greatest location for our faith is the person, the person of God. And if we're to take this, this, this definition of trust in an object, for an object, to work as it should, and we just assign God into this, to the picture, we would see that a definition of trust, of faith in God, is simply trusting God to be God in every place God said he would be. If God is the object, I'd trust the object to do as it should, for God to indeed be God. And now, a lot of people, this is why I, I made sure to include this last part. A lot of people want to say, I'm going to trust God to be God, and I really need a lot more money. It's not trusting God to be God and who you think God should be, right? I have an illness. God, you be God. Heal me right now. God's never said he would do that. It's trusting God to be God in every place he said he'd be, not, not who I think not, through, not who I think he should, he should be. But I simply look at God and say, what have you said? That is what I will believe in. That's what I will put my trust in. And we get, we'd understand this, right? If, if a chair had a mouth, it would say, hey, let me be the chair. I'll hold you up. If an airplane had a mouth, it would say, let me be the airplane. I'll keep you up. And God does indeed have a mouth and he's shared with us who he is and what he will do. And we just hold him to what he said, just as we hold a chair to be what it was made to be. <clears throat> Excuse me. And God has said tremendous things to us. He's given us tremendous things to hold to. Like he'll never forsake us. You might one day feel alone, like God's not present. And you can trust in the words of God that he is not gonna leave you that he's rescued your soul, that you don't have to be fearful if you've believed in him where you're going because we just hold him to do what he said he will do. That if we don't lean on our own understandings, he will guide us, he'll guide us. That if he cares for the lilies, he will provide for us. We hold God to what he said he'll do, what he said he will be. We simply trust him to do exactly what he has, exactly what he said. And so I trust, I trust because of what he said. But I also trust, another great gift given to me, I trust not just because of what he said, but also what he's done in the past and in my life, right? I could say beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord has always provided for me. He's always cared for me and guided me in amazing ways. In hindsight, right? Looking in hindsight, if I just look back in my life, he's, he's never failed at being God, ever. I, in hindsight, I can look back and see that in terms of tragic things that have happened, traumatic things that have happened, according to Romans, he's always taken those things and worked them for my good, which is me becoming more like Jesus. That's the best gift anyone's ever given to me. At Christmas, if you could give me a box, I open it up and poof, I'm more like Jesus. It's the best thing ever. And so he's always, in hindsight, taken traumatic things and worked them for my good. In hindsight, he's taken people who I thought were a lost cause. They'll never come back to Jesus. They'll never show up in the first place to Jesus. 
and his, and his immense power has turned what I thought was a lost cause into a spotlight for his grace, that no one, no one is more powerful than him, that he can bring anyone to, to himself. And so I'm just, what I'm trying to show is I can have faith in God because of what he said, but I also can have faith in God because of what he has done. He's never failed me. And we see this show up in Psalm 77. And you might, and I recognize some might say, Ryan, well, things get tough. Things get hard to assign faith and everything be fine, right? Sometimes we find ourselves in a shaky place with shaky faith. And it's hard to, it's hard to bring faith in, in God into the picture because it feels like God's not there. And the psalmist in, 70, in Psalm 77 finds himself in a shaky place with shaky faith. And I just want you to listen and we'll pull up some of, his, some of the verses in a second. But we don't know what's going on. We don't know what shaky place he's in, but we know his faith is incredibly shaken. As he says this, maybe you've said some of these words before. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? This is verse seven. Has his loving kindness ceased forever? And has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has in his anger, or has, or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Short summary, Psalmist is saying, God, are you done being God? Are you gonna forget to forgive? Are you gonna reject me? Not gonna extend favor to me? Your compassion no longer here anymore? Shaky place with shaky faith. And I'm, I'm thankful he does not finish here because he gives us a great principle, a great help to us when we find ourselves in a similar place. What do we do when we find ourselves here? The psalmist just said, God, are you gonna stop being God? A couple verses later, no, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Looking back in hindsight, surely I will remember your work, your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on all your deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Shaky place with shaky faith. What's the principle? The psalmist helps us here. When I find myself in that spot, the world seems uprooted. God seems gone. I simply look back to see what God's done in hindsight and I put it in my sight in the moment of the need. When my life is uprooted, I simply look to the work of the Lord in hindsight and put that insight, because that's exactly what I need. I need to be reminded that God's promises, that God will never fail, will never fail at being God. And I recognize, <clears throat> excuse me, I recognize some might say, okay, Ryan, this is, this sounds good, you know, trust God to be God. How's that, but how's that show up? How's that actually reveal itself in my day-to-day? -day? I get believing in God, you know, I, I pray to him, I, I, I trust you, I believe your son was God, died for me on my behalf. Like, I get that, but what happens in my day-to-day -day when I'm waking up, or how does faith actually show up? And I've been reminded of how that happens recently in a fault of my own, actually. <clears throat> Really, anxiousness has never been a ruling thing in my life. I recognize that's not true for many people. 
but anxiousness and fear never just, never controlled me much until really uh, my son was born. His name is Matthias. He's about six months old. And as, he, as he's come into the world, anxiousness has kind of bubbled up into my heart and into my thinking. And specifically in one place, and it's before I go to sleep, that I've been caught in this paralyzing fear and anxiousness that stops me from sleeping. And I never think about these things in my day, but right when I put my head on the pillow, they just all flood in. I don't know if you have experienced the same thing. But the place that I feel paralyzed, and it sounds morbid and weird, but I have had this paralyzing fear that I will pass soon, like that all my life will end soon. And, and it doesn't, it's not necessarily really in the place of like, well, I'm, what is going to happen to me? The fear and the anxiousness is really on what will happen to my wife and my son. But I get stuck in this pit of how are they going to get provided for? How will he have a father that gently leads him to the Lord throughout the years? He won't, he's not going to have anyone. How's my wife going to make, make ends meet with, with a young son? And I recognize many people are living that life. But I have, I have been stuck in a pit worrying and stressed out and paralyzed about what's going to happen if I'm not here. And it was, it was about a three-week span this was happening to me recently. And it was a tremendous gift to me because I'd say a conviction of the spirit welled up in my heart to reveal this problem of mine when I'm trying to sleep but can't is a faith problem. It's a faith problem. And that has shown because I've I've just spoken about how the Lord has been so good to me. He's guided me. He's cared for me like he's cared for the lilies. He's taken tragic things and worked them for my good. Right, I've just explained, right, how he's always been good to me. He's always been God, exactly what he said he'd be for me. And as I live, I've said, God, thank you for doing all these things. I've sat and I've stood and sung songs. Lord, thank you for caring for me, for providing for me, for saving me. You name it, as I live. But for some reason, my faith in God is there up until the point where I think about my life no longer being on earth. And I'm like, you're done. You're done. <laughs> you're done providing for my family. You see, I'm not saying that with my words, but that's what my actions are saying. Thank you for, for being you as I live. I'm not so sure you'll keep doing so if I die. And how silly, how silly. And faith has, faith has been the solution for me. Faith has fought the battle of anxiousness late at night and won the battle of anxiousness at night. As I've simply, when these thoughts show up in my mind, I've simply just looked at the Lord and said, God, as I have lived, you've been God for my family because I am yours. And if I do indeed pass, I trust you'll continue to do so for my family because they are yours. My wife is yours. And I hope my son, I hope my son will be as well. And so faith has been the solution. And, but what's true here is in these moments of paralyzing fear, and I'm not assigning faith to God, I have a beautiful gospel that profits me nothing. I have a beautiful gospel that is of no value to me, just like Israel, because I have not combined it with faith. I've not looked at a hard thing and brought God into the picture to hold him to what he said he would, he would do. And I'm not surprised. You know, I, with college students, I work so often with them, and anxiousness just seems to be the budding issue many times. 
And I'm not surprised if the, the places we are anxious, the places we are fearful, are because we've taken our faith out of the greatest location, God himself, and put it in ourself. And why should we be surprised when fear, anxiousness, and paralyzing thoughts show up in our mind when our faith is not in God? They're in, they're, it's in us. Because if God did not exist, I have every right to be fearful about what will happen to my family. I don't have control over it if I pass. But if God is in the picture, which I believe he is, I can look at a, a terrible thing and have peace and be content. And so faith, it's just trusting God to be God. Another, another place that this is just, I've just been reminded of this was a good friend of mine and his wife had lost their child through a miscarriage and I was sitting with him and it was just an incredibly sad place as we were mourning the loss of life just being present with him. And he said something that, that shouted faith, and I'll always remember it. As we're sitting there, and he looked at me, he said, Ryan, he said, I know what Romans says, that God works all things for the good of those that love him. But he said, I, I don't know what good is going to come from this. I'm not even sure I'll ever see it but I believe he will. And it's not like faith washed away the morning and the tears and the sadness before this, but it was faith alongside sorrow that was just a tremendous thing for me in my own life. And I hope if I find myself in a similar place, I can look at the Lord and say the same thing. I'm not sure I'll ever see the good work you'll do, but I believe you'll do it. Faith is just simply looking at God and saying, God, I'll trust you to be, to be you. And I recognize sometimes that, well, Brian, this feels kind of passive. I just kind of sit back, God, do your thing. You know, faith, is ne is never, faith is never a passive thing. It's an active thing for us. And if to, finish, to finish where we started, I want to bring us back to, to Israel. Because we see, you know, they're in the wilderness, they're walking to this promised land, and God has told them, listen, I will give you the land. And we see this in Exodus 23. These are God's words to his people. He's saying, listen, trust me to be me on your behalf. And he says, I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. God said, listen, this is what I'll do for you. This land I'm leading you to, he goes on. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. A couple verses down, four, I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. So again, a clear picture. This is just simply God saying, hey, hold me to what I'll say I'll do. But faith is not a, faith is not a passive thing for us. It's an active thing for us because they indeed show up on the border of the land and they're looking at it. And they, they should have remembered Exodus 23. And actually one of them does. Two of them do. Caleb's one. They, they send some spies into the land and they come back out. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised if Caleb is remembering God's words. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we shall surely overcome it. But what, what happens to the other spies? But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. 
So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw and the men are of great size. A couple of verses later, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in the wilderness? Just a, a simple picture. Faith is not a passive thing. It's an active thing because God said, I'll drive the people out, go in. And they took faith in, from the greatest object out and put it in themselves as they say, there's no way we can do it. They're too big. And they were right. But God himself said he would do something and they did not trust it. Rarely is there a place where obedience to God does not follow faith in God. Rarely in our lives. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. If we're going to trust God to do what he says, we must, we must follow what he asks, asks us to do as well. And so that, that's simply, this is what faith is. It's looking at God saying, God, what have you said? That's exactly what I'm going to hold to. No matter, no matter what comes no matter what comes my way. And, I, and not long ago, we spoke to the great gift that comes as we take what God's done in hindsight and we put it in sight. And a big act of faith that we consistently do together is through communion. And so I want to ask Matt and the ushers to begin passing out the elements. I know for much of my life when the word communion has shot up, it's like the five-minute bell at school, time to time to kind of like move on. But when we, when we do that, we miss out on the great gift of communion because it is an act of faith. We're simply looking what God's done in hindsight and we're putting it in sight that we're fixing our eyes on the Lord, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's a moment, it's a moment to fix our eyes on him. And it, and it does us good to remember him to see his, how his body was broken for us and how his, his blood was, was shed for us. And again, we don't believe these things save us, but they, it does us good to be reminded of what happened on our behalf on the cross. And so the elements are gonna be passed. We're gonna take together in a short moment. But as, as they're being passed, I want us to take some moments to reflect, to talk to the Lord, whether you're waiting or you're waiting to receive the elements or take, regardless. The scriptures speak about how we should examine our hearts before we take. And I've always taken that to be, we should look to see if there's some sin in our life that's not been confessed, that we haven't addressed before we take, because we don't want to take wrongly. And so in just a second, I, I want us to give a moment for the spirit to work within our own hearts and ask two questions of the Lord. One, Lord, is there a place I am not putting my faith in you? I'm not trusting you to do what you've said you do. Second question, Lord, is there a place I have, I have faith in another object, not you? Late at night for me, the other object of my faith in these hard moments is myself. Maybe there's a place you're looking at God to know, I have more faith in myself. 
And if that's, if that's been difficult, nothing's surfacing, think, where is anxiousness present? Because that also reveals often that we have another object of our faith. And so we'll take a couple minutes to consider this to the Lord, to give the spirit a place to bring conviction. And then we'll come back and take together. Communion is, is really is an act of faith. Simply looking at the cross and putting it in sight. Where we say, Lord, I believe your body was broken for me. Your blood was poured out for me. Thank you. And we believe the good work that the Lord did on our behalf, he'll continue to do to complete. And so with that in mind, let's take together. Faith, faith indeed does wonderful things for us. It profits us so much. Our life changes peace, joy, and contentment are present. But faith also does something even greater. And that is it reveals to a, a faithless world about how great our God is, that he's worthy to have faith in. That he's so great and so amazing. He's the greatest object of our faith. Our faith brings him much glory. And so walking into a new year, I'm, not, I'm personally not one for New Year's resolutions much, but if there is one, a year of faith is a good thing to aspire to. As we know, the scriptures say it's impossible to please God without faith. And so well, we want to sing a song together as a body, one that looks at God and says, God, you are glorious and that alone gives us a reason to have faith in you. And so let's stand and sing together.
truth with you that glory belongs to Christ alone. We want you guys to know that uh, as you leave here, there's an opportunity for prayer. We don't want you to leave without being prayed over. If you feel a need in your heart, you want to rejoice with someone. There's men just out the back of uh, North Auditorium and uh, to your left as you exit uh, south. God bless you guys. As you leave, I want to read this over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Bless you guys. Go in peace. <laughs>